Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Screenwriting Life. We're so glad you're here. Uh, Today, we are going to talk about antagonists. Whether it's an action movie, a comedy, or a contemplative drama, story needs conflict and antagonists create conflict. So today, we're going to talk about what makes a great antagonist. But before our topic, we're going to talk about our week's because there's two this week, uh, or what we call adventures in screenwriting. Lorian, how have you been? I saw you today and I was like, oh, I miss Lorian. (laughs) Same. Um, Although I will say we had quite a hearty tech session this morning already. So uh, I miss uh, your face. We have been texting. Oh, okay. I miss your face too. And yours too, Jeff. Um, So I don't remember last week, honestly, but uh, this week, earlier this week, my uh, daughter has spring break. So she and I went on a little vacation for three days. We ran away to Santa Monica and uh, we stayed in a hotel, which felt very risky, but we were very safe and no one was at the beach. So it was delightful. Like we had our little space at the beach and no one, you know, people would walk by us, but it was so great not to be tied to my computer and Mm. to be out of my house and that it was like a different dynamic. Now it was just my daughter and I, instead of the trio that we usually have. And, you know, I didn't have to walk the dog, but most of all, um, I didn't have the, like my computer, which usually no matter where I am in my house or my life, it's sort of like down here in the basement, like come on, you need to be working, like get your shit, right. let like, right. come on. I know you're not really doing anything important, but we were on vacation. So it was like permission not to, I had to work at night after she went to bed because, you know, things still needed to be done and I had deadlines, but it was just really great and uh, filled up my bucket. Oh, I, like nice. I just, even in a little traffic on the way home, Uh, It was just like, ah, and of course we did more walking and more interacting with our bodies than we have in so long that we were both like dying the next day when we woke up, like our calves were sore, my arms are sore. It was like, wow, this is pathetic, right? It was sort of like a message. uh, And I was really surprised how many people were out and about, like eating at restaurants and walking on the pier. So we avoided all of those areas, but um, because I'm still super paranoid, but it was just really, really nice. And then, and then, you know, of course you're on the beach, I'm on the beach, I'm watching my daughter play in the ocean and, you know, I'm still trying to figure story stuff out, right. My brain's still working, right. But it felt less pressure. It felt less like, Oh God, I got to write this down. I got it. It was a little more blue sky. Cause there it was the big blue sky. I could look up, you know, it felt, I felt like unchained on, unch- you know, like sort of released to, um, uh, imagine and have fun and sort of run through my thoughts with different scenarios. So it was really, really nice. And then yesterday I, you know, I was like, okay, I'm ready to go. I have my outline. And then of course it all completely collapsed and uh, I had to rip it all apart. And so that at the end of the night, last night, I was like, okay, a whole new plan. Uh, Cause what happened is I've been working on the script for a very long time. And I had a few people read it recently, several versions of it. Very, very kind, generous people. And they're like, I like the first version best. 
it's the one that has the most passion and voice and like, it's your story. And so what I've been doing is sort of um, allowing the notes I'm getting um, to create an antiseptic version of this story. Hmm. That doesn't mean the notes are asking me to do that. It's how I've been interpreting the notes. Right. Right. And so I had to really think about what that was, why I was doing that, why I was making those choices. And I don't really know yet. Like, I don't know the easy way is like, oh, it was safer, but it might be that thing where you're thinking other people uh, know better. And instead of rocking back into, but this is the story I want to tell. So um, part of it for me is when I get too intellectual in my head, I lose that thing that makes me love writing, you know? And so I had to, I'm having to go back in and find that. And so it's fun. Like I'm just now, I'm just sort of typing and raging on the page again, which, you know, structurally it might have some wobbles, but I love it a lot more, you know, Uh, this is what I want someone to read when they read me, you know, this is my voice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm a little messy. Um, but you know, you get what I'm trying to say. And when you meet me, you'll be like, oh yeah, that tracks. (laughs) (laughs) So it's been, but you know, and I can't say this with any confidence yet because I haven't finished it, but you know, I'm working through all these things with the script and it's been very, very humbling. I have to say the, this whole process with this particular script has been like, has taken me down to some very low places in mm. terms of like doubting my, my sense of being a writer, of being a storyteller, you know, it's personal again. So like, that's very complicated. Um, so yeah, it's been very humbling, which um, is good and healthy. Not like I was ever like, I'm the supreme goddess of writing and creativity, but you know, just in terms of my expectations of myself and how quickly I can write this script. <laughs> I had a friend who's very wise and I, I'm probably getting this totally wrong and she's going to call me after she hears this, but, and she, I believe told me that the root of the word humble is, is about, or the meaning or the meaning behind it is um, to have your, is your feet on the ground. It's grounding. It's oh. grounding. So humility sometimes in our culture is used as kind of a bad negative, but the positive of it is it's grounding. It helps you feel your feet back on the ground again, right? Versus kind yeah. of up in your head, yes. right? That yes. that artistry is a full body experience. You got to get grounded back down into yourself with your feet on the ground. So that's yeah. what I hope is actually what you're feeling. When you I hope that. that's true. I have always struggled with this balance of like my head and my body, right? That's right. what I'm talking about. Like I'm so comfortable, you know, uh, digging into my body and like what I'm feeling and, you know, and then kind of popping back out to my head. Like, I wish there was more of a connection between the two. So and there will, there will, it's just a muscle. It's just a muscle and it will happen the more you do it. And the more you pop back and forth, it's going to happen. Um, so how was your week, Meg? Um, I don't remember last week at all. Did it happen? Who remembers this week? You know, my kids are on spring break. So, uh, in my mind, I'm taking a vacation with them, but you know, I'm really <laughs> bad at rest. I am terrible at it. I am terrible, terrible, terrible. If I don't go somewhere, it's not happening. And um, so it, I, especially when you have teen boys around the house who are basically complaining that they're bored and yet they won't go do anything with you, <laughs> right? They won't actually go on a bike ride or, you know, hike or, you know, they just want to complain about it. Um, 
So, I mean, I love them, but that's teenage hormones for you. Um, so I did, you know, yeah, of course I've still been writing, uh, doing some writing, uh, now this week and, um, you know, it's in that Rubik's cube place of there's so much that we need and want in the story, but it, it has to all be efficient and filmic. And like, you know what I mean? Like I'm past the point now of it can be as long as I want. It can be a birth draft. Now it's the stage of, okay, well, all that stuff that came up that, that, that we love or people love has to happen in 20 pages right and so choices have to be made and kill your darlings which to me is like i love that idea or that joke or that blah 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 or that exchange or that relationship or that character or whatever and out they go right we have to you have to start condensing things and collapsing things and you it's good because it's forcing me to see what is the story versus what is the decoration or the fun i mean listen every 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 movie needs fun of its own kind within its genre, right? Like getting scared and thrilled can be fun, right? That's why, you know, so uh, it, it's just, it's tricky. And it's the, it's that kind of thing where I work all day on it and I am exhausted at the end physically because it's so much brain work. You know what I mean? That, that, that brain work of making that, this work and all the pieces work. Cause I get three, these three pieces in line and that one falls off and, um, but then at the end of the day, I'm exhausted and I look back and it's like, how many, I, I have this weird thing. It's like, oh my God, what have I done? I didn't write a whole script today with all that brain work. I like noodled in this scene. Like it's like one scene I've been noodling in or one sequence or one whatever. And I get kind of, I beat myself up because I have this crazy, I guess, thing from school of like, what is your, what did you produce today? And this section, this stage of writing which can happen while you're writing a script. It can happen in outline. It can happen lots of different places uh, where you're trying to find the pieces together um, or which pieces you have to keep or go. It's just, it's taxing. It's, it's, it's mentally taxing. So I've been tired. Um, you know, Lauren, are you comfortable talking about um, I'm not good at plot conversation? Yes. So you said to me on text, I'm just not good at plot. Yes. I, and, yeah. And I was like, I just know that's not true. And you know, that's not true because you help other writers with plot. So, you know, that's not true. So we were just kind of spitballing that maybe you, the way that we say things tend to work out for me, maybe you should just start saying, I am good at plot. I'm good at plot. Yeah. So I started to do that. So, you know, when, when I had my first pitches uh, here in Hollywood, I was so scared. I was so afraid. And I just decided at one point to say, I love pitching. And I said it so many times. Now I actually legitimately love pitching. And not just because of that, because these are some of my natural skills, right? Talking, performing, right? And so the same thing happened where I decided I wasn't good at plot. And yes, you're right. I can help other writers with their plot. I can look out plot holes and figure things out for them. Um, but for myself, I felt like I wasn't good at it, at the mechanics. And so I just started saying, I'm great at plot. I love plot. I love plot. I great at plot. And then I had this um, wonderful story session with Pat Verducci, who's this amazing story consultant. And she broke it down to me in a way and not on purpose, but I just, because I was in this mind frame of, I love plot. And so I was listening to what she was saying in a different way. And this idea that like, when you move from scene to scene, it has to be causal. 
<laughs> and of course, obviously, any writer knows this in any format that this happens, therefore this next thing happens, right? And right. that there is a form for it, right? Act one, act two, act three. And, but, but I think in deciding I love plot, I'm great at plot and listening to Pat and it just sort of clicked and I love plot. <laughs> that I am now able to look at what I'm doing as I'm doing it in terms of emotional narrative drive and plot narrative drive. And that it is, I think it's part of the reason why I trust myself to go back to this earlier version and write more from this deeper, truer place, because now I have more confidence in my ability to tell it uh, structurally. Right. And of course, anything I did, I have no I have no confidence that it will be perfect or anything, right? And it shouldn't be, right? But right. Um, but yeah, but I've been believing that I'm not good at plot for a very, very long time. And really what it took was, and I think it was your nudge to just change the, I love plot, I'm great at plot. And then it opened me up in order to be able to understand something in a way that when Pat said it, where I was like, oh, obviously. Like I've been hearing that my whole life as a writer, right? Like, you just, yeah, you just didn't have the context or honestly, it's all the work you've done. Like you're, you know, we beat ourselves up for writing all of these drafts, taking all of this time, but all of that is shifting your brain. It's burning new pathways so that when you hear it again, you're like, oh, I get it, right? right. So I think that the, the, the thing to share with our listeners is if you have something, a tape in your head telling you you're not good at an aspect of this, just experiment and say the opposite to yourself. Say the opposite, pick a friend and every morning text them the opposite, right? Which, you know, Lauren, you've been texting me, well, because I'm, I, I do love plot, you know, <laughs> I'm so good at it, right? And it does, it starts to shift things. You know, you have to be super careful of the narrative that you're telling yourself about your writing or your life because that narrative will then manifest. I do believe that because yeah. that's the context you're looking at everything in. And every, every yeah. writer, I don't, and it's funny, we should ask them some of the pros that are coming on later in our show that we have lined up that we're excited about. We should ask them, do, do you right now believe or have you believed in the past things that you aren't good at? And I promise you, they will say yes. They might say you have to cut this, but they will say, you know, I'm not good at this. You know, I have worked really hard on dialogue. It's just uh, the last piece that's coming to me is dialogue. It's always the thing that I'm the most vulnerable about, you know? So I feel like every writer has the thing that they're like, right? That, you know, your stuff flows out of playwriting where it can be lots of conversations. That's where you started. Therefore, of course, these kind of big plotty things, right? Mm -hmm. But you are good at it. So I, by the way, we can keep this because I have told you, you are good at it. Right, and I feel better about talking about this, honestly, because I feel like I am conquering it a little bit now, rather than just coming on and saying, I'm terrible at plot, right? Right. I can actually have a conversation about, you know, changing my, like you said, like, how do you change your, the narrative you're telling yourself to allow for the opportunity to see that you actually are good at it. Jeff, what was your week like? Um, well, I sometimes on the rundown, I'll pop in. And if I feel like I had a big lesson or something that's a good takeaway, I'll pop in for the my week conversation. And I mentioned it on the show, but I'm producing this feature and I'm in the casting phase right now. Um, so I'm getting all these electronic submissions from actors, like self-tapes um, based on what I've written. Wait a minute. Are you producing it or directing it? I'm, I have producing help, but I uh, am also kind of producing it as well. But there's a couple. Okay, I just want to say, 
I just want to say, I'm just going to call you out right now. Yeah. You're directing a movie and you're casting it because you just called yourself a producer instead of a director. Okay, keep going. That's a good way. Okay, you're right. I am I'm directing a movie and I'm casting it right now. It is funny. That's a good point. I do have this weird revulsion to calling myself a director. Yeah, you got to get over that. It's super important before you get on set. I know. You, you got to break that. It's the same thing as her breaking that she's not good at plot. You are the director. Yeah. And that's all you are. You might be doing producer duties on the side. That's your business. Everybody on that set, you're the director. Okay, sorry. You're right. You're right. Um, But what's been really interesting, the first thing I want to say is I just love actors. I know we have a lot of our listeners who are actors, but like, I think it's so brave and vulnerable to put yourself out there. And I'm watching all these auditions and I want to cast everyone. I'm like, every one of these has something I love. And like, there are these choices that are being made. So like in the same way that I think writing is a very brave and vulnerable and honorable craft, like I just want to say that to our actors of like, it means so much to see people putting time and thought and work and choices into the thing I've written. Like that is a huge honor. So just for any actors who are frequently auditioning and making choices, thank you for honoring writing. Like that's just really a cool thing that you all do. How did it inform your story, watching the actors make those choices? It's been fascinating. I think one thing that's been affirming is I'm like, okay, this writing doesn't suck. Like, I like these scenes. And <laughs> like, the, act- the actors are getting it. Like, I feel like they're understanding the arc of these scenes and like certain lines are reading in a way that I really wanted them read. And jokes are playing in a way that feels funny. Um, but I'm also learning a lot about things I want to tighten and sharpen. And like, there's one specific interaction that's happening in one of the scenes I'm auditioning that's not right. And I'm only seeing it and hearing it because it's being acted. So like, I think the lesson is it can be really valuable, especially if your script is in a late stage to get it read. Um, I know we talk about table reads on the show, but there are certain things that are just hard to see on the page and are much easier to see when you can put it in someone's mouth. The only, the only caveat I have to that is if it's a comedy, because if it's a comedy and you're, the people you can get to do the reading are just not funny, you could start killing it and just because they can't deliver it. You know, that's the only thing that I get a little bit like that. Ah, that's scary, but I mean, that's it falls out comedy, but, um, but that's, that's awesome. anything. I think I, when I, my thesis play, I couldn't find an actress to deliver the actress that we cast couldn't deliver on the sort of, poetry of what I'd written um, because this character was sort of in her head. And so I had to cut huge chunks of it because she was killing it. And so I had to change something I loved about the play because I'd cast badly. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so cast well, cast yeah. the people that you're seeing upping your, as you know, you're, I'm agreeing with you, Jeff, like actors can up it, man. They mm-hmm. can really just take it to a whole different place. And it's really thrilling when it, listen, it's thrilling guys when you see an actor say your lines. It's thrilling. It's so thrilling. It's been really fun, but I just, um, I want to just shout out our actors who listen to this show because it's really beautiful. I think it's just such a beautiful and honorable craft. So thank Absolutely. you to actors. And um, we, we would not be writers if there were not actors. So you all are an essential part of the, the churn. Absolutely. Um, speaking of an essential part of the churn, I don't know how <laughs> nice. that is a transition. That's- <laughs> um, <laughs> But we continue to just love these Apple podcast reviews. We've gotten a nice crop. It's funny. I uh, I feel like I'm slowly catching up. So just keep them coming and your review will get right on air at some point. Um, but, you know, in terms of our audience, we've noticed a nice little uptick since the John August episode. Um, and I bet that there's a lot of Script Notes fans who have discovered us. Um, so thank you so much for hopping on our ship. Um, you know, I think 
we really view ourselves as a great companion to script notes. I listen to both shows. I, I view script notes as an essential, I view it as essential listening for upcoming writers. And, you know, I'm going to say it. I also view our show as essential listening for upcoming writers in different ways. So we're really glad that you found us and welcome. And uh, we hope you stick around. We're going to continue to really do our best to produce a, sh a show that will be really valuable for you. And I think different ways than script notes. Um, and John said the same thing um, on his show. He shouted us out, which was really nice. So thank you to John. Yeah, that August. was so great. Thank yes, you, John. Thank you. Um, we just really love and respect that show because it has the same goal we do, which is to mentor writers. Um, and I'm going to read some reviews. So this comes from Jellybean72688. And again, this is on Apple Podcasts. Five-star review. Not just a great podcast for learning the craft of screenwriting, but a therapeutic listen for writers struggling with self-doubt. And a great example of getting in touch with ourselves in order to be completely real on the page. Um, I love that review because it is true. We do have to get in touch with ourselves to be real on the page. We call that, you know, getting into our lava on the show. And um, I think that we're glad you um, are resonating with that vulnerability aspect of the show. Um, another review, this comes from SB Cruz, who says there's a nugget of gold in the, this is a nugget of gold in the vast podcast world. I'm so glad I found this podcast today. It's been a delight to listen and learn from. These two ladies check the ego at the door and really share their raw and honest experiences with the listeners. Writing is a solitary task, so it's nice to be reminded every now and then that struggles and doubt are a part of everyone's journey, no matter how new or experienced you are. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. And then Thank I'll you. just read one more. This is from Lucy Vine. Lori and Meg and Jeff talk candidly about all things screenwriting, not simply the mechanics of it, but they address the drive within us to get our story on the page. The show is an open, honest breath of fresh air, and I look forward to it every week. So um, thank you guys. That means a lot. Thank you so much for writing It really those does mean reviews. a lot. And uh, I can't wait to keep reading because there's just some really fun reviews coming up in future weeks, um, as well as some really exciting guests. And as a tease, I'm going to make sure you stick around to the end because we have some really fun guest announcements coming up that we will announce at the end of the show. Um, but I say we transition and talk yeah. about, talk about who's going to, who's going to leave when we're talking about antagonists. That's Come true. On. That is a big topic. They might get intimidated. <laughs> it was my only thought. <laughs> I no. might be antagonized. They might feel I'm antagonized. intimidated about talking about antagonists. <laughs> I mean, so I have a couple of things to say about antagonist stuff I've taught and, you know, uh, learned sometimes the hard way. Um, so, you know, everybody, can kind of, I think, get the baseline of antagonists create conflict. I mean, like we already talked about earlier, sometimes you forget the basics, even as a pro writer, because you get so kind of overwhelmed by all the stuff you've got going, but they are there to create conflict. I think another way to think about that, that helps me is they're there to change the main character. That's why they're there. So your character is on a journey of change or they're changing the world, side note, we can talk about that later. But in terms of a transformative main character, how are they gonna change? Well, they have to go into conflict to be challenged and have their mind opened. And who's doing that? The antagonist is doing that. So two ways I think about this is, when I worked with the great Jodie Foster, speaking of amazing actors um, and storytellers and directors, um, she, used to say, and I saw her say this once to a young writer who had written something that she was considering. She, and I warned this writer, she was gonna say it too. Uh, she said, why this antagonist for my protagonist? Why of all the people in the world that this, my character could meet and interact with and get challenged by, why is this 
the person who's going to crack them open, who's going to show them who they are, who's going to change them. Why? Why this person? And you, you do need to be able to answer that. Another way to think about it is um, somebody told me once, again, may not be true, and I kind of don't care because I like it so much, but um, that the ancient Aramaic word for devil, if it, you translate it directly, is bringer of light, which is pretty crazy, right? Like, what do you mean devil is bringer of light? Well, it's because the light the antagonist is bringing is the illumination of the main character. And it's bringing the light of awareness to them. It's bringing the light of transformation to them. It's bringing the light of change to them, right? In essence, your antagonist is the instructor. They're offering learning and growth. So they're the one who's going to show you who you are, right? So, um, I'm not saying the antagonist is aware of that. They're not. They, they're in their own movie in which they are the lead character. You should also be able to tell your movie from the antagonist's point of view in which your protagonist is the hurdle to their want, their problem that their want's going to solve. All the stuff we've talked about today for the protagonist, the antagonist, he's in his own movie. He thinks he's the hero. He or she thinks they're the hero of the movie, right? Um, so, but in essence, what you know as the creator is I'm choosing this antagonist with these qualities, because that is what is going to push and change the main character. You know, the other thing to remember, of course, is when, you know, if, if, if you believe this, which I do, then that means in your real life, if you keep getting the same assholes in your life, you have to ask, what are you not learning? What universe keeps bringing you teachers and you're not learning it. So you better learn it and then they'll go away. That's just my belief. Um, Sometimes it's just saying no to assholes being in your life. You know what? That might be what you need to learn, (laughs) by the way. Right. You might need to be to learn to say no. You might need to learn learn to say, I don't care what you think. You might need to learn a lot of things. But did you learn it? Nope. Okay. here comes another version of it. Um, So uh, they're consciousness raisers. That's what their function is in terms of the character's journey, in terms of why we need them in, uh, you know, the, the phrase opposition teaches, right? Again, if you have the, especially if you have the context of I have a problem and a goal, what I'm really going out on is a journey of transformation and the opposition to my goal is what's gonna change me and raise my consciousness and teach me. So like I heard Christopher Nolan once talking about when he did Batman, he thought of the Joker as a shark and that his reason for being in the movie, the Joker, was to test Batman and all the other characters so they could find out who they were. That was his mode. It's what he talked to the actor about. You're here to show them who they are, push them and show them who they are. And some will be happy with who they are and some won't, right? Because under pressure, you might disappoint yourself too, right? Um, which is the end of act two. Um, so that's for me how I come at antagonists. And um, you know, I don't create this way, I create in the blue sky dream. But then when I go back, I'm looking, is my antagonist really fulfilling this? Are they pushing hard enough? Are they creating big enough problems? Are they are they equal to the task with your protagonist? Are they asking your protagonist to up their game more, 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 up it, up it, making it harder, 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 harder? Um, now, this is all for features, of course. I think TV is different uh, uh, in terms of antagonists, but uh, we're a feature show, so we can talk about TV at the end. But um, 
So the other thing, of course, your antagonist needs is goals. They need their own goal. They have their own problem. They have their own goal, right? Um, in order for them to kind of provide maximum conflict. And that goal, I think, should the best and easiest is if it's in direct opposition, right? I'm not saying it has to be, but that make that's higher math if it's not in direct opposition. Um, so, uh, you know, and you, I think people have heard this, but it's worth saying in case people haven't that, you know, you can also think of the antagonist as the dark side of your protagonist. So if your protagonist does not learn the lesson, if they do not change, in essence, they will become the antagonist, right? They will, they're on the path. These are mere images. They are on the path to becoming that person. Now, I don't mean in exterior terms, right? You know, they could be completely different. But interior, they are going to be the same. If you look at them inside, they, they now have the same wounds, the same trauma, the same darkness has overtaken them um, as what it, your main characters on the path of. Um, so those, you know, I have some other little things to say, but I don't know, Lorraine, it, what you jump in here. Um, like before we started the podcast today, I was like, I don't know what to talk about antagonists, right? Like, because ah, I sort of, uh, like to respond as I'm going. And if something feels right, rather than coming at it from the outside in, like you're so smart at doing. Um, I, I loved Black Panther so much, like in its entirety. But my favorite part, one of my favorite parts is the anti-hero character. Like he is so much his, he has his own, he has his own problem. He has his own goal. Everything he does is he's the main character in his story. And for me, like, I, I'm curious what you think, Meg, is the difference between an anti-hero story and an antagonist story, and if there is one. Well, it's just that the antagonist is the hero versus, you, you know, an anti-hero, meaning they're a hero, but they, but they usually, I mean, anti-heroes have their own antagonists, by the way. You know, right. I, just because they're an anti-hero doesn't mean they're not hitting conflict and opposition, you know, and the trick is to really emotionally I don't know, you have to always emotionally relate to an anti-hero, but they, you somehow do, there's humanity there that you right. can recognize. You can recognize a piece of yourself, just that they're taking it really far, right? As an anti-hero, they're taking it really, really far. Um, um, I'm glad would, you mentioned Kill, yeah. Killmonger though, Lorraine, because I think like he's an essential villain that, of like this decade. Like when I think of great villains, like his motivation is so sympathetic like, I just think, like, if you want a nice masterclass and a great villain, he's a good example. And I think for the anti-hero question, I may be wrong here, but I think, like, from a technical standpoint, the anti-hero would always be the protagonist. It's like, so, like, your protagonist, if they have, like, troubling qualities or ethically questionable motivations, they would be billed as the anti-hero. So I think, like, you're, I, th I think the antagonist would never really be your anti-hero because you're not rooting, you're, they're not on the hero's journey of that story. I don't know if that's right or not. Yeah, and I don't think there is a right, right? It's just kind of what you want to build and how to make the math, story math work. And um, I've never written an anti-hero story, but if, I, if you said to me, Meg, here, go write this anti-hero story, I would do a deep dive into anti-heroes. I'd look at the five best versions of anti-heroes and the five worst versions of anti-heroes to see really, um, you know, who's come before you and who, what are the elements of that, of pulling that off? You know, Clint Eastwood often plays anti-heroes. So I'd go and look what he's doing. Um, uh, 
you know, a lot of times standing next to the antihero is an innocent. And really, if you look at it, it's the innocence emotional point of view that you're seeing the story through, right? So it, it's tricky. There's there's ways to do it. I think antagonists are more as a term are more about the person coming at the the main yes. character to yeah. offer to offer the obstacles. Yeah, I remember mm-hmm. working on up and how hard it was, you know, not for me. I was an observer, you know, a part-time helper. Um, but watching uh watching the directors wrangle with the month's character, right? And creating a really vibrant, true villain for Carl, right? And um making sure that it was that it was about Carl. Right. That was the key part. Right. Because villains are fun. Oh, my God. Right. Because you're sort of, you know, you don't have to worry about there's no moral. Right. Morally ambiguous. Right. They can do crazy stuff. Right. So they're fun. And but it's really about bringing it back to the main character, which is what I learned on that movie. And that that it has to be like Carl, if he didn't make different decisions, he would become like months. Right. Not literally, but he would go that path. So that was really a big uh, learning opportunity for me, which I loved, you know, as it was, it was a struggle, you know, I mean, that's why those movies are so good because they take the time to really work through that stuff to make a true antagonist for the hero of the story. Yeah. And now some people um, will say, well, I don't have an, I don't have an antagonist uh, as a person, as a character in my story. Right. And I think that's valid. You know, often it means, you know, man versus nature, right? Like it's, it's, it's a, a situational antagonist. Um, I would still even then think of that nature as a character, right? Like what it's still throwing obstacles. Um, what are those obstacles trying to teach the main character? So when people say to me, well, I don't have an antagonist. Um, my first response is, okay, well, you have antagonistic force. There are challenges being laid down. What are those? What? How are those in relationship to your main character? And then sometimes I just worry when people don't have antagonists, it's because they actually just don't like conflict. That it's, <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's just a dodge. It's just a dodge, right? right? It's this intellectual dodge about why they don't have antagonists. And I just think they're avoiding conflict because we all do, especially in our early drafts, right? Because we're just so nervous about hurting our main character. You know, I, you always, I, I've heard when I was teaching, you know, they don't want to be a sellout and they don't want to be commercial. Like there's this whole kind of like, you know, artist mantle you can put on to avoid conflict. And I just usually poke a pin in that because narrative is about conflict of some kind. Um, And I just think that people are actually afraid of beating up their main character. Um, that just yeah, yeah go, go ahead. ahead, go ahead. Well, mm-hmm. I was going to say, like, I like to write characters that create their own conflict, mm-hmm. right? But still, I need somebody to come in and uh, show a different way, right? That, the, that right. The, the antagonist is someone who's like, no, you can't do that here, which creates more conflict for her, right? right. And he, this, the, this antagonist is not a bad guy. He's actually doing what's right. She's the one trying to do the bad thing, but right. he's standing in her way, which is creating more conflict for her. And so I could I could defend that and say, well, she's her own antagonist, but she's not. She's just a character moving. Yeah, not in her, her mind. No. Yeah, you know, they're not aware of their own that they're right. even if they are, they still keep doing it. So they're not actually enlightened yet, right? But so this that- person, this antagonist keeps coming in with big roadblocks. Like, yeah. I know that's your plan, but no. 
So then she does something even more ridiculous. And then he's like, and extra no. And this other thing, you get in trouble for doing that, right? So she's creating the opportunity for the antagonist to come in and create more conflict, right? Which she's um, going to have to respond to, which yes. shows us who she is. That's how yes. you know who somebody is, how they respond to the challenge tells us who they are, right? Because people can tell us who they are in dialogue, but you know, a lot of people are liars. So I think intuitively as animals, we don't trust that. It's like, what are you going to do? That's who you are, what you're going to do under pressure in a challenging situation, under conflict. That's who you are, even no matter who you think you are. <laughs> right. However, the, this character got set up in the beginning. This is who they are, because that's how they responded to that challenge. Right. And it opens up all that vulnerability and all their skill set. Challenge also gives them an opportunity to show what they're really skilled at. Right. In terms of you know, often you're, your character is going to, you've attached us to their problem. You've attached us to their goal. And now they hit a challenge that most of us would be like, well, that was fun. I'm out. We'd be like, <laughs> I'm done. But this character doesn't. Right. And they go for it or they find a way to avoid it. That's super smart. Or that's where suddenly you're in a, the hero element, right? It's how they respond with skill or smarts or intuition or whatever it is, or their crazy messed up self-sabotage is just so delightful and so oddly amazing and fulfills something that we all wish or are afraid we do, it's deeply satisfying to watch because we aren't doing that. But the only way you get any of that energy happening, any of that character exposure, is that force, that antagonism, that conflict coming at them so they have the opportunity to do it. And I think that sometimes, especially in our first birth drafts, we are protecting our main characters. And I always say to emerging writers, your job is to beat up the main character as if you took a stick out and were beating the shit out of them. And that stick is the antagonist. They have got to pound them. Every time they get a foothold, you take it away. Every time they get a grasp on the cliff, you pummel them. You have got to just keep, because that's the fun of it. I'm not saying you don't have the quiet campfire moment. Of course you do. But in general, you, I want to see them respond. I want to see them respond. And, you know, I think people protect them. They wrap their main characters in bubble wrap. Why? Because we think we are the main character, right? And I think some part of us is afraid that that main character can't take it. And maybe that's because we think that we can't take it. But that is the beauty of writing because you get to find out on the page that this creation of yours, this character, they can, and they'll hold that for you and they will do it. And they're going to surprise you. That's my favorite part of writing. When I, if you can create a situation with an antagonist in which I literally am reading and I'm like, I do not know what this person is going to do. Well, how the hell are they going to get out of this? And by the way, that could be as big as a Star Wars movie or it can be as small as a tiny drama in which, oh my God, he walked in the door, he came. And all of this tension, it's like, what is she gonna do? And I'm like, I don't know what I would do. What would I do? That is the juice, man. That's what everybody who's reading samples is looking for. They want to not know how the fuck this character is going to get out of this or what they're going to do. And then, oh my God, it's so satisfying what they do. I didn't think that's what they were going to do. I didn't see it coming whatever. But all of that is being created because of that antagonist walked in the door because that antagonist played another chess move, right? And you as the creator, the Zeus of it all, 
you're moving those chess pieces around to push and push and beat up your main character because it's almost, to me, it's condescending to your character. It is condescending to assume they can't take it. Of course they can. It, of course they can. They are the hero. The universe has chosen them as a hero. Why? I, again, I'm not talking about they have to be heroic and skilled and have a shiny shield, right? They could be the most unsuspecting hero. Doesn't matter. That's great. But really, when push comes to shove, they rise. It's the shove that gives them the opportunity to rise. And if you hold back on that shove, if you put cotton around it and you don't really shove them, they can only rise so far. They can only surprise you, the creator, so far. So kick the crap out of your main character. And I don't mean, you know, I don't mean make them a victim. Because remember, if they don't respond and they're just getting beat up, that's incident and that's victim power. It's about the choice they make when they get shoved. And they're not always going to make the right choice. Right around before act two, they're going to make a really bad one because that shove is so hard and so deep and made them feel so vulnerable that they, re they regress all the way back to who they were in the first act and they make a terrible mistake. It's because it's the final crack, right? So... It's those choices that come from the antagonist's pressure that is creating the story. Um, it's creating plot, it's creating character reveal. It's just so, so essential. So, you know, go look at the scripts you wrote or the movies you love and see how the antagonist is interacting with that main character's journey, how they're helping create choices for and actions for the main character. How are they testing and teaching the main character? How hard are you making it on your main character? What is your antagonistic's problem? What's their goal? How would they tell you this movie, right? If it was, you know, that would be a super fun thing to do, right? Just let them talk to you as a writing exercise. This is my movie. Welcome to my movie. And, you know, I was born, <laughs> whatever. Right. Because that is actually the dark side of your protagonist talking to you, really. There's also a fun exercise where, you know, you make the chart, you know, scene by scene of, you know, what your character is doing in every single scene. You also can do, where is my antagonist in all these scenes? Even when they're not on screen, right? Like, oh yeah, that's fun. What are they up to? What when are my, they up to? When my main character is doing this, what are they doing at three o'clock on Tuesday, right? right? And so it can really inform choice, you know, how the, that uh, antagonist comes into the next interaction with your character, right? They got coffee spilled on them. They killed someone. Like what energy are they bringing you know, their own story. What are they bringing to that? That's a really fun. You can also get in a situation. Super fun. They're just they're super, super fun. <laughs> they're super fun. And, you know, I have found that sometimes antagonists, I'm like, shit, I like the antagonist better than the protagonist. <laughs> and you're like, crap. Well, why? Because they're free to act. And your brain thinks, well, if you're good, if you're a good person, you're reactive. It's this weird thing. And so your main character has gotten really dull. Right. And, you know, it's hard when you get in those situations and you can go through and just give your main character more, let them beat them up more, let them do more, take, you've probably given actions to other people around them, give it to them. Right. Why isn't she doing that? Why is he doing that? He's a supporting character. That's a main, that is a main choice in this movie. She's got to make that choice, figure out how to make it her. Right. Or I was talking to a friend and, um, he had this great moment where he was under guilt going to go do something. And I was like, you know what? Being asked to do something is very different than promising something. 
Do you know what I mean? Like really even look at the choices you have and is it the hardest thing for that main character? The hardest thing that will give an engine to their push, right? Um, I don't understand. Can you explain that to me? Being asked, being, I mean, I'm like, if if you being asked and so if you have a main character on their deathbed and they say, promise me, you will, Mm -hmm. that's one mantle to put on your main character. The other one is I promise. Don't worry. I promise I will avenge you. I will get that for you. Agreeing with something. Yes. You're the one declaring, I will do this. And then that becomes your goal. Do you see how one's a want and one isn't? Yeah. It's very subtle. And yet it has huge impact on that, this narrative tension, right? In terms of, is it something being given to them? Is it something that they're reacting to? I.e., will you please go do this for me? Or is it, oh no, I'm not going to have you die in vain. I promise you, I am making a committed promise to you. Which is That's so hard gonna... to do with female characters sometimes, you know, to get them to be in the driver's seat like that. You know, I'm committing to this. I'm doing this. Well, because um, we're intellectually trained our society yes. to service. Serve, Yes. But that's why if you're writing a female character and you're either male or female, because by the way, females do it to their male female characters and males do it too. Um, you have to go through your script and really look at every single action and who's taking it. And so look at every antagonistic action and is it as hard as, uh, you don't want to beat her up either, right? I literally sometimes will stop and say to my writing partner, okay, if this was Tom Cruise, if this was Tom Cruise, would Tom Cruise get knocked out right now and wake up somewhere? I don't think so. I think that's one of my pet peeves. No, because it's somehow it's a girl unconscious. Like, don't do that because that is the least active thing. You're like killing them. But it's a funny thing because like, I think a lot of times, and again, it's not being about a male or female writer. This female somehow is representing your soft, vulnerable heart. And so you don't want her to be heroically in the fray of it and get beat up. So she gets knocked out. The guy comes and saves her. She doesn't say anything and just lets everybody else do it. She gets caught into it. People ask her to do her a favor, blah, 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 blah. Many, 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 many subtle ways that we all do it when it's a female character. I mean, when I worked for Jodie Foster, I literally just started reading scripts for men because it was so pervasive. And then, and to say, just change his name. I mean, that's what they did for Ripley and Aliens. Great female character, right? They didn't even change his name. They just made it her, right? Because it, you just have to be super careful that if you have a female character, just to go back to our topic, that you're not watering down the antagonist because you don't want to make it unconscious. So you don't want to make it too hard for her. And that you're not watering down her want to fight that fucking antagonist. Again, she may not be aware of wanting to fight them. In her mind, she might say she doesn't, but she's gonna. When push comes to shove, and please, it doesn't always have to be about a kid. Or a, or a traumatic sexual assault. Like, we can just want to save the world. That's good. Whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Like, women's goals is going to be a whole, we should do a whole show on it. Because yeah. it's insane. It's yeah. insane. I have a couple of thoughts. Okay. Um, first of all, I'm, one thing I want to say, Lauren, I'm glad you mentioned that our antagonist doesn't necessarily have to be, like, quote, evil by societal standards. I think that all depends on your protagonist, right? In fact, often I think good antagonists are doing the right thing. I mean, we talked about Killmonger. There's like very easy arguments to be made that the the philosophies that's guiding his antagonism in Black Panther is actually maybe correct. 
And I think that creates such a compelling experience for an audience. I think you should be able to quickly justify and articulate an antagonist motivation um, because I think that really creates a compelling antagonist. Um, or you look at, you know, anti-hero driven stories like Breaking Bad and the antagonist is, you know, a drug enforcer. It's the US government, it's a moral system. But importantly, we're siding with our protagonists. So the antagonist is the thing that prevents the protagonist from moving forward, whether or not they're right or wrong by societal standards. I just thought that was a really important point to bring up. And I just have a quick list of who I think are some great antagonists in film. If we want, if you want some examples or want to kind of get your mind churning as you're writing your own. First of all, Meg, you mentioned Christopher Nolan. I actually rewatched Inception last night, which that is such a good movie. I rewatched that movie last night and like the script is just so good. Um, but the antagonist in that movie is his deceased wife. And she shows up in these, whenever he enters the dream state and is like this perfect representation of his guilt. So again, she's this symbol of the battle that he needs to overcome. And it's just such an emotionally charged relationship. You know, we talk all the time about how emotion is such a powerful driver for story and the emotional complications between his deceased wife and him is just really beautiful and kind of heartbreaking and just really interesting. So I think Christopher Nolan's great with antagonists. Um, I wanted to, of course, mention Hans Gruber. I feel like we're not a real film podcast if we don't talk about Die Hard at least once in these first 50 <laughs> episodes or whatever. Absolutely. Um, and I'm actually going to pull, there's another podcast I listen to um, that I think is great and is a good listen if you're looking for to expand your podcast diet. It's an NPR podcast called Pop Culture Happy Hour, and they just did an episode on Die Hard. And uh, the moderator, Linda, really beautifully articulated what makes Hans Gruber such a good antagonist. So I'm going to play it for the audience. We've talked before, we talked a little bit when Alan Rickman died about the fact that Hans Gruber is such a, an essential, brilliant villain. Right. One of the things that makes him brilliant is he's so likable and he is so right so much of the time and he is so capable of predicting what the FBI is going to do and he has set all of this up so that the things that are going to happen, for the most part, he has anticipated other than John McClane. It is a really good plan. He had a really <laughs> good plan that probably would have worked. Everything in the antagonist's world, if you're thinking from their perspective, would work except for your hero. Your hero is the one thing that will derail an antagonist's plan. Um, so I think that's like a really interesting way to yeah, think about cool. it. Yeah, that's cool. I thought absolutely. that was just really smart. Yeah, that's super smart. Just one last um, antagonist I'll mention is I feel like you can't ignore Voldemort, right? Like there's a reason Harry Potter has become one of the most important or at least well-known stories of the last, you know, 20 years. And the more you get into those books, and I, I really do love those books, Voldemort become he almost shrinks from this really kind of broadly evil kind of mustache twirling villain to this kind of really insecure, almost weak man who's terrified of death. You realize that every decision he's making is to avoid his own mortality and his own shame. And it be, he becomes this character who never experienced love. And so he's terrified to die and realize he's leaving this legacy behind. But what's so interesting about Voldemort is 
he's compelling because of his insecurity and his weakness and his fears and his vulnerabilities. And I think in the same way that compelling protagonists are often driven by emotional complications and vulnerabilities, I think really good antagonists can often also be driven by emotional complications. I would say always have to have some, you know, even if, even if in Die Hard, and I don't remember it well enough, we never find out why Hans Gruber is doing what he's doing. I promise you the actor has made up a reason. Like Mm -hmm. they have to know what, why this person is a human being and why this person would go this far, you know, what it can be political, but whereas, you know, go down again, but why do they have that political view? Why do they have to be rich? Why, what hole are they filling that will never be filled by the way, right? In, uh, in Buddhism, they call it a hungry ghost because there's never going to be enough food to fill them up, right? So, uh, and by the way, hungry ghosts in, in Buddhism, they have huge mouths and little tiny throats because you can never get it down. Um, so there is a, there is that sense of insatiability with them that it's, it's never going to be enough. Uh, and that vulnerability. And I love that you use the word avoid um, because usually that would be an inactive word, but look how active that avoidance is, right? Look how active it is. There, there's nothing that you can't make active uh, in, in its own way. Uh, And just the last thing with Voldemort, that's really interesting. This is a spoiler alert if you haven't read the books, but the very last image of him that J.K. Rowling chooses to show us is like this tiny, like sad baby. Like basically there's this really intense kind of classic archetypal showdown between Harry Potter and Voldemort. And Harry Potter essentially by, or Voldemort kills Harry Potter and is essentially killing the part of Voldemort that lived inside of Harry. And what's left is a shattered fragment of his soul. And it's this weak, crying, scared little baby. And that's the last thing we see of him as a villain, which I think is just a really rich and evocative image to really make you think, who is your antagonist beneath all of it? Like who really is he or she, of course, just something to think about. I love that. That's awesome. Spectacular. Oh, and I I'm literally thinking I have, about my stuff. <laughs> I have no memory of reading Harry Potter books or watching the movies now. So I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> so there's this wizard, Lorian. Oh, he goes okay. Okay. Oh, right. I remember. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. I mean, I always love when our show has me thinking about my own projects, by the way. I just always think that that's so good. Like, I'm literally like, hmm. What yeah, I made a whole page of notes. That's <laughs> funny because I kind of hate when our show makes me think about our, <laughs> our projects. But I'm like, oh, no, everything I've written is terrible. No, I'm just kidding. That's because right. you're going, that's because you're directing. Because know, you're, you're in it. You're into production. I'm All in right. panic mode. Uh, thanks for tuning in. And if you haven't yet, join our Facebook group and email us at screenwritinglife at gmail.com. And I am so excited to let you guys know that next week we are featuring one of the best writers in the business, Andrew Stanton, who wrote and directed what I consider a perfect film, Finding Nemo, among many others. And we're going to talk about how to set expectations in Act One, among many other topics. I, we, I just am so excited for you guys. Uh, I have learned so much um, by just working uh, in the vicinity of Andrew Stanton. Um, and so I'm so, so excited to bring him on and uh, have him help you all, talk to you all. Yeah, it's very cool. So um, go to the Facebook page and ask your questions. And remember, you are not alone and keep writing. Thanks for tuning in to the Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. 
Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash the screenwriting life or email us at the screenwriting life at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it. And not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.